Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. Hustle. It's a requirement for anyone trying to make it in media. And it's a word that today's guest, Amy Foster, uses to describe herself. Amy is a new business manager at Dentsu Canada, the Canadian division of Dentsu International, one of the world's largest multinational media and marketing communications companies. On the outside, media might appear to be one of the more exciting and sexier industries, but little is ever made about the demands that come with working in media, let alone the impact it can have on a person. Amy gives us a candid look into how after suffering from burnout, she decided to hit the pause button on her career and use the time to find a role that incorporated everything she loves about the industry. Amy Foster drops by to chat about growing up in Cambridge and St. Catharines, Ontario, being raised by a single mother, the positive impact community workers had on her childhood, and a media career spanning broadcast buying, integrated media sales, leading planning teams to prospecting, pitching, and closing new agency clients. I'm a new business manager working at Dentsu, and I've been there since July. So start off as a contract, but we're rolling it into a full time. And it's great. I've been working with um, Alex, the CEO of all of Dentsu line of media, but also working with all the CEOs within the Dentsu label. So I prospect Dentsu X, um, all of it. And it's been a lot of fun in a very fast few months. And we're really excited to keep going in the marketplace. Dentsu's doing some great things and I'm really excited to be there and be part of that growth. Amy, I'm really looking forward to our chat. Before we go any further though, let's bring it back to the beginning. Where were you born? Technically, I was born in Hamilton, Ontario. And I say technically because I was raised in Cambridge. Crazy story, but I was many weeks premature and I had the umbilical cord wrapped around my neck. So when my mom showed up at the hospital, they rushed her to Hamilton and I was born at McMaster um, emergency C-section. And this is 1980. So yes, that's how old I am. And I was so small that they had to use face cloths for my diapers because there was no Huggies preemie sizes at that point in time. But I never lived a day in Hamilton, just born there. Oh my God. So you, spe- if you don't mind me asking, how premature was the birth? Like are we talking two, three weeks, four weeks? It was closer to six weeks. Yeah, I was under four pounds. So I was just a little, 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 little girl. I, I assume then you must have spent a lot of time in, in uh, intensive care then, uh, just yes. in an incubator for the most part. Your first, I guess your first four to six weeks of life were in an incubator. Very much so. Very much so in an incubator. And it's kind of funny. You've seen me in person. We know each other. Um, have a huge birthmark on the side of my neck. And a lot of people thought that was a hickey growing up, which is really <laughs> oh, awkward. Geez. So I have memories of being in like kindergarten and older kids being like, look at that hickey on that kid's neck. And I, I had to look up what a hickey was. Didn't know. <laughs> oh, I got to imagine. Yeah. At some point you're just like, I got a what? I got and a then what? You got a what? And then you're in kindergarten and you're just like, people do what to their necks? What? <laughs> yeah. Oh, geez. Um, so what was life like growing up then in Cambridge? Cambridge was small town. I come from a single mom who we just didn't come from much. And so we had this crazy lifestyle she was a young mom, so I was 12 months younger than my older sister. So it was just very hectic. She was a bartender. And so I have memories of like waking up in our 
two bedroom apartment and the band was sleeping on the floor. But it definitely built character in me, I'll say that. Um, and I was in Cambridge for most of my childhood, moved to St. Catharines for a year, um, my grade eight year, moved back to Cambridge, finished up most of my high school, and then I moved to Barrie to finish up high school and did college. So what were your interests or hobbies growing up? Like the band, and I mean this sincerely, like because you had a band crashing over at the place when you're waking up to do cartoons, waking up to watch cartoons, did that pique your interest in music or any way, or were you just kind of like band life isn't for me? Yeah, I was more band life wasn't for me. <laughs> um, I was definitely way more into the cartoons and watching TV. And we lived in this area that had a whole bunch of apartment buildings and townhouses. So a lot of kids my age. So I grew up in the, the 80s where you just woke up and went outside and played outside until the streetlights came on. And then you're back in the house and maybe you heard your mom screaming for, me, for you from the balcony and you'd have to come home for lunch. But it was just very much an outside 80s life. No, I can absolutely concur with that. It's kind of weird now. I mean, when you see kids outside, they're usually sitting on their front porch or on their on the curb and they're on their phones, which is weird to say that the kids have iPhones like they're just sitting there with eight hundred dollar piece of machinery. But gone are the days where you go outside and kick a soccer ball in the middle of the street. Most definitely. I got my first cell phone when I was in college. I technically got my first cell phone in high school because my mom won a contest on CHFI. And if I had to take the car out, she gave me this big Ericsson thing that was like the size of your forearm. So I know what you're saying there. Yeah. Was was it pay as you go as well? I believe so. It was a Fido. I remember that. Yeah, where you had to just pay it with cards or whatever because we were young and we, we couldn't get uh, – that's weird. Because when we were that age, we could not get a monthly uh, – a monthly plan because they'd have to do a credit check and you didn't have a credit score. And now it seems like they're just handing them out like Halloween candy to everyone. <laughs> For sure. My two kids both have their own phones now and they're both a grade, well, grade six and grade seven. Did you have any influences growing up, like anyone that you looked up to maybe in your family or maybe outside of the family? Yeah, most definitely. I was really connected to our local community center. I found an opportunity to get away from the house and the crazy. And I was a big hearted child. So I wanted to volunteer all the time. My mom definitely raised us with like, you give back to your community. So after schools, I wasn't allowed to just run the streets and be a hooligan. I had to be doing something. So I was volunteering a lot. And in that local community center, there was a lot of, well, I understand them now to be social workers, but back then I just thought they were really nice volunteers who were really there for you. And for me growing up, helping me kind of understand my lifestyle and how there is more out there for me as I look forward to my future. So I would definitely say that those like those social workers in the community center definitely um, helped carve me to be who I am today. Was there any particular piece of advice that uh, you received for them that stays with you right now or was it just the way they interacted with you? I don't know if there is any like very specific advice off the top of my head, but I'm now like I said, a pay it forward kind of person. So I've been a big sister to somebody in the city for eight years now. And I would say that my biggest piece of advice to her was kind of what I learned through them, which was this, this is just your childhood. This isn't your life. And so once you're old enough to make your decisions and curate the lifestyle you want to have, that's when you can start to judge how you feel about life. But for right now, you're living other people's decisions and try to make the most out of the opportunities put forward. And so I don't think they ever really said those words, but that was the actions and the intent that they left me with. 
I will say that was very eloquently put. So definitely a great thing to learn from them. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, but let's talk about your very first job ever. It's kind of, it's, but it's funny. It's the trend that I've been seeing when I when I do these podcasts, and it seems like we all kind of started in media in our teenage years, uh, hawking newspapers. Yeah, I remember my sister and I had a paper route, and we had to walk blocks to get there. And we had what we thought were newspaper carts, but now I understand them to be grocery carts. And they just had like our stack of newspapers and we had little fanny pouches because we did have to collect. We weren't the free newspaper in town. And so going door to door and dropping those newspapers off and once a week knocking on the doors and asking for money. I think that's what set me up for new business sales today because <laughs> I'm not shy. I'll ask for the sale and I'll demand the money. <laughs> I did free papers, so I, I I saw a different ugly side of the business where people would complain if they felt that they were being shortchanged out of a flyer. But was it difficult? Like, okay, let me ask you first: which newspaper were you delivering? Was it the Globe, the Star, the Post? No, the Times. Sorry, which one? The Cambridge newspaper. The Cambridge, so the Cambridge Times. Times. Yeah. I've lived in. I don't want to say I've lived in the city my entire life, but for the most part, I've either been in Toronto or in Mississauga, like suburban Toronto. And the friends that I had that say, you know, did the Toronto Star or the Toronto Sun, they would talk about the difficulties of collecting. Did you have that issue in Cambridge or was the small town feel or, or just the small town people that you, or small town customers, I should say, were they a little bit more understanding that, yeah, you've got to pay your debts, even if it is to an 11 year old? I truly think with adult eyes looking on it today, it was the brilliance of the newspaper industry to put kids out in front of doors to collect the pennies because it's really hard to say no to the kid but I do remember there was one house on the corner that never paid just never paid that's a, actually no that's an interesting way to put it that they basic kind of like when you go to a trade show where <laughs> they put the attractive people to hand out samples literally the newspapers were like well stick kids out there you can't say no to like a a little kid smiling at you trying to make a living or learn something about the working world so you're right that is a good I've never looked at it that way yeah, but Victor, I was a hustler, so I knew the houses that paid all the time. <laughs> and when it came to Girl Guide brownie cookies or Girl Guide cookies and chocolate bar sales for fundraisers, guess whose doors I was knocking on? Those ones, because you know that yeah. they paid. Because they paid, and they knew me a bit. So, you know what you discovered at a young age? You discovered low-hanging fruit. Yeah, <laughs> literally, that's what it is. That is awesome. I will say though, the Girl Guides, when we still took the subway and there was no pandemic happening. The girl guides would hit me hard as soon as I get on the subway. And it's weird because there would be people doing their whole spiel where they're just like, here's why you need to buy them. And the last time I bought them before the whole world fell apart, this one young girl walked right up to me and she had this like look on her face and held out the box. And it's like telepathically from her, my, her mind to my mind, she was like, if you don't buy these cookies, this is what happens to my life. Like everything falls apart with the girl guides. And if everything falls apart with the girl guides, then the rest of my life unravels. And so I literally was just like, what can I get for 40 bucks? And I took all the cookies. <laughs> and then I fell back because I got off at the end of the line and they're just like, they're like, hey, you want to buy some cookies? And I'm like, I'm out of cash and this is why. And yeah, they got a hard lesson that you don't start selling at the end of the line at the end of the workday. You do it at the beginning. You got to hit people up on the first thing in the morning. I wanted to ask you, after graduation, what brought you to Georgian College and what made you want to study advertising? It was 
bit of an opportunity. I guess I've been an opportunistic person from the start, but I left home quite young. So at 15, I was asked to leave the house and I did. And I moved in with somebody who was a family friend. So I was in a safe space, but she was moving to Barrie and said, if you want to come, you can come. And if not, you'll have to find alternative accommodations. And so I looked around Cambridge and thought, I can go to Barrie. And so I went and finished up high school. And just because of the situation I was in, I didn't have the funding and the support to like move to another city and get into residence. And so Barrie had a great college and I was close. And so I applied for advertising. And my joke is, is that I opened up the course calendar and well, advertising's on that front page and just picked it. But I think I had, I going back to hobbies as a child, I watched a lot of television and I remember Who's the Boss and Angela Bauer and just wanting to be that businesswoman. And so when I saw advertising, I thought, yes, this is where I'm going to go. I mean, Judith Light, she was, you're right, Angela <laughs> Bauer, Judith Light, she was running that agency that came up and she drove a Jaguar. That yeah. was a, a big deal. They had and a whole episode. She had a housekeeper and everything. Like she was totally owning it. I reflect back and I don't think that show got me into media and advertising. But when I do reflect back, I'm like, huh, it is kind of interesting that I watched that show religiously as well. And here I was being exposed to an advertising executive. And then fast forward 25 years later, not to date myself, here I am in advertising. So it is funny how that stuff kind of catches up with us a little bit in a good way. Yes, definitely in a very good way. And you know what? I look back and think I should have gotten into something different, but I I don't know what else I would have gotten into. And I have had a fun and fulfilling career, so I can't say I would take it back. Out of college, your first job was an internship at Starcom. Did you find it or did it find you? Again, just taking those opportunities and those little signals that were everywhere in life. And so I was able to connect with some Georgian alumni and somebody was working at Leo Burnett. And I reached out during the Christmas break going into my last semester. So I was kind of ahead of everybody. Everyone was gonna get back in from the holidays and then start their internship search. And I thought, I'm gonna spend my holidays finding an internship. And I did somehow. And I think to myself now, knowing how the industry shuts down at the holidays, who did I reach out to? But I found somebody who signed me up just right then and there. And it was a few weeks before I was supposed to actually start because I think I had most of a semester to still do. And in that time, a job posting went up on the school bulletin board for a opening in the research department at Starcom Leo Burnett. And so when they called me to set up the details, they said, would you be willing to take your internship in the research department instead? And at the time I had it split half planning, half buying. And I was just like, yes, because I knew a job was there. So I started working with this guy, David Schiffman, and he and and I did my internship under him. But then quickly there was somebody internally who did want that job. And so we ended up flipping and I ended up becoming a broadcast buyer, getting hired on full time. But that's technically how I got into the industry. Were you excited to be getting into TV, just being such a fan of the medium? Most definitely. But it's funny how much I didn't really know about it when I was getting into it. But I have, I just like talking with people. I love negotiating. I think that does go back to those newspaper sales. And so it really hit a lot of the things that I love. I love 
putting numbers and puzzles together. Like I love Sudoku and I love negotiating and it just all came together that way. And I liked getting to look at all the pilots ahead of time and going, this was before digital media. So those upfront parties were parties. They were quite legendary and it was mm -hmm. before Facebook. And I'm pretty sure not, not about Facebook taking like advertising dollars away. I just mean people putting those party videos online. Yeah, it was, it was when I started in the era of TV was king, followed by print and a little bit of out of home. And so TV was what? great. And I was doing radio and TV buying. So I was at all the parties. Oh, nice. I started in television as well. And TV was king when I started. Uh, I'd say I'd say probably went TV, radio, online to a certain degree. This was before social was being monetized, like it was mm -hmm. out there, but people were like, what do you do with that? And for the most part working, because my first gig was at the CBC, and it seemed like there that the internet was really used for two things, putting articles up and sending emails. But yeah, I'm with you on that. It was after that, it was basically print and then out of home as well. Yeah, I remember when the agencies would have two people running all of digital. <laughs> yes. Sorry, I'm air quoting digital, but that included <laughs> search and banner ads because that's all that there was. That, that's all there was back then. <laughs> and it was like if you did search, you had to buy AltaVista or Lycos and I mean, Yahoo, I know they still do search, but it's more of a partnership with Bing now, or I don't know what the inner workings are specifically, but you had all of these search engines and then it just kind of collapsed one day and then seven became one or two yeah. or three. Okay. So after Starcom, you found your way to Mediacom. Yes. So tell us a little bit about how you landed there and what you were doing at Mediacom or, or can I, can I call it Mediacom? Was it MBS at the time? I was just going to say it was MBS TMC and I was actually in the retail media department. So RMI. Retail um, Media Inc. I remember that. Yes. So I was, that was my first um, move. So I started off internship, got hired on as a buyer and somebody that I was sitting beside and became close friends with during those years at the agency she had moved over to client side. That client had moved agencies to MBS. I guess they were in conversation about, we need to step up. Do you know anybody? My name bubbled up and I got a phone call to see if I wanted to apply for a job there as a, as a buyer. And I made the switch and I kept on my buying career there. And then I started doing even more markets. And that's how you progress back then in buying was you got to do more markets. I got to do U.S. border markets and that kind of oh, stuff. Nice. So yeah. putting aside those incremental responsibilities, how did being a buyer differ at uh, differ between um, Starcom and uh, retail media or MBS or the media company? I <laughs> miss those days. I, okay, can I tell you something as a side note? When I started, I was a coordinator calling on those agencies. And then I just remember one day someone just started calling it Mediacom. I'm like, no, you mean these three? And they're like, nope, it's just Mediacom now. And it was kind of depressing. Yeah, I, I worked through that transition. I was there when that buyout happened. And yeah, it was it was a different world, but that wasn't your question. Your question was the difference between like the difference about it. Yeah, like yeah. like for the most part, let's say for example, you're gonna buy, let's say for example, you're negotiating buying the exact same TV show. I'm just gonna throw I'll throw the big bang theory out there because that's one that everyone knows. Pre pretend that it was on back then or two and a half men. I'm not sure which one, <laughs> but you're buying that for your client at Starcom, you move over to Mediacom. Does it differ in any way, the process that you would go about doing that at Mediacom? 
most definitely. And it was because of the retail aspect of it. So at Starcom, I was working on national brands. So I was dealing with one sales rep for, you know, maybe the whole Eastern region of the country, but we were locking in a bunch of markets together. When you move into a retail media team, you're calling on the retail sales rep at that local station across the country. So your one negotiation turns into 20 negotiations, turns into time zone management, turns into nickel and diming. Um, You'll have people that will take your buy at the end of the day and thank you because now I remember this. Now I can get my kids braces. And I'm like, well, you're welcome, but you just got the share that you deserved. Thank you. Um, And it was less about corporate deals and more about getting the best local rate. At least you heard the braces comment after, because I've heard a similar story too. And it kind of came up in the negotiation ahead of time where it was like, and I wasn't part of this, but someone had told me that it was someone, I think it was on the radio side. The buyer or planner had said, yeah, they called me up and said, Hey, do you want to buy this? My kid needs braces. And I was just like, okay, uh, how do you respond to that? But it turns out that you, you heard that line too. You got it after the fact. Yeah, most definitely. You try to separate the money from the impact like that because you just do need to do what's best for the buy, best for the business, best for your package. Um, And you can't let those little personal comments sway you. But it's difficult sometimes to hear it, for sure. Oh, but good on you, though, for putting boundaries up because that's what you're on payroll for is to look after the client. I remember, too, I went over to this job and I wanted a more senior title. And like anybody, I was fairly young and very fresh in the industry. So the statement was, well, come prove yourself and we'll talk money in three months. And I thought, that challenge, <laughs> yeah. like, no problem. I can prove myself. And so I went and three months in, they're like, congratulations, you're promoted. And I said, no, but that was what I wanted to come here for. That's Now you're just wrapping it into a promotion. And my boss at the time, looked at me and said, are you really negotiating your salary with me? And I looked back and said, you pay me to negotiate the best rates for my clients. Why would I not do the same for me? Oh, that is a great way of putting it. Tell me you got money. I was going to say, thank God you got that for that argument. That was brilliant. (laughs) No, I wish we were arguing over more money. It was just such (laughs) peanuts back then. I know. And then the tax man comes along and it's just like, okay, it looked a little bit bigger. Now it's 20 bucks a paycheck, maybe. (laughs) Before we go any further, though, you mentioned direct response. Mm -hmm. We all know what direct response is in the industry, but it doesn't. But anyone listening to this on the outside of our industry isn't familiar with what direct response is, how it's bought and so forth, and how it kind of fits in the lexicon with, say, branding and any other types of ads. So just kind of give us a bit of Cole's notes as to what direct response was or is and why it's so important and it deserves its own sort of dedicated individual. Direct response has definitely changed too from the years and era that I was in what we say DR. Um, But direct response is an opportunity to match the call center data right back to the spot placement, typically through a unique phone number. So each station would have its own phone number for that one brand, that one campaign. And what I was doing was putting TV schedules together based on the call volume that the call centers were getting in and converting it based off a cost per call. So in real time, well before Tableau and any of these 
data mining, data management machines. I was managing Excel files from call centers and then looking at my latest buy sheets and matching things up and then optimizing my schedules to cancel spots off of whatever station was the lowest performing and call the best performing station to say, do you got more inventory for me next week? And just constantly in the market, shifting those TV schedules around based off the call response, based off of the call center logs. And it was even before there was that much traffic going to the website, but that was when I was getting out of direct response was when I was really sick of talking to clients about well, yeah, your call volume's down. People are using the internet more. Well, the other <laughs> thing you could argue too, apart from them using the internet is, is that maybe you maxed out the number of people you could potentially reach on that oh, station. Oh, never, never. Oh, never. Oh, no, I'm okay. Joking. Right. I'm so joking. There was definitely news stations that I'm sure we were tapped out. And you see it as a consumer when you're watching a news station during the day. And it's just those same five commercials over and over and over again. But it, it does work. You know what I find interesting too is that uh, I think it was, I think it was my mom who caught me laughing at this once. It was a TV station I was watching a couple of years back, and just from experience, a lot of station promos were coming up, and I'd kind of have a giggle at that. And finally, my mom was like, "What?" And I'm just like, "They're not. They're having trouble selling the ad space. That's why they're filling it, filling it with station promos." Mm -hmm. It's like those little things that you and I see that uh, I guess people on the outside don't see at all or understand about the business. Or you start to see when you're too close to what agency has what clients and you're like, oh, that's a mindshare station. Yeah, like that's the same way all over this. That's come up too. Not at that mm -hmm. level, but like if I see a McDonald's ad, I don't see McDonald's anymore. I see OMD. Yeah. Or if I see an Apple ad, I'm seeing OMD as well. Like I'm not going that, hey, this agency spends a lot on this station, but I'm just kind of like, yep, that's what I see. Maybe mm -hmm. I should buy a Big Mac, but I just see OMD. And I can tell you too, that sometimes reps will see that and they'll be like, we didn't get the buy. That's where it went. I made a strong practice and I had some great leaders in the industry when I first got in that made it habit to call and explain why you didn't get on a buy. And before you booked that last buy sheet, you made sure that you turned down everybody first. And I think, I think it set me up for some great relationships and it also helped me justify the decisions I made and knew that I was making the right decisions because I could justify it. If I could speak for reps everywhere, we thank you for that because then we can input that into Salesforce, let our managers know and put the whole thing to bed and move on. Because if we don't get an answer, we have to chase you for one. And I know when I moved over into sales at Chorus, I definitely felt that burn of why doesn't more people call back and it just explain. That is a perfect segue into uh, the next, my next question, which was about you moving over to the dark side. And so it's it kind of sounds, it kind of sounds like when you went over to Chorus, this was your first media sales job and it sounds like it was a bit of a cold shower. I had a, a, and still a great friend works there and she had this amazing job and I wanted to work and do what she did. And so she opened the door the first time and I remember getting the phone call that said, you were number two, but we went with somebody else. And then the job came up a year later and they're like, why don't you pitch again? And I was like, that sounds great. And they're like, you're number two, but there was somebody else. And the third time they called me, I said, if you don't hire me, I don't think I can do this again. And they said, please just apply. And they, and they hired me. And I had a chance to work Chorus. This was, you know, before Chorus and Shaw, it was Chorus Legacy, I guess. And it was within their 
family vertical. So at that time they had a kid's vertical, a family vertical and a woman's vertical. So I was mainly um, selling integrated sales sponsorships. So an opportunity to sponsor a program or integrate into the program. So a great way to plus up some good clients or get more revenue off of clients that aren't investing with you that much. And so really paired up with sales managers and kind of, you know, hit the market trying to sell integrations. And I, I love that job. That was a fun time. Um, but what happened? Teletoon got bought out in full and there's 150 of us had to walk away that day. Oh, jeez, I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, it's okay. I jokingly said I was like the efficiency in the buy because I was the I was the most recent hire. So it was easy for me to get rid of me on a compensation package. And some of the people were going that had many, many years. And so I just jokingly said I was the Cosmo of the buy. But it was okay. It all landed and sent me in the right direction. So it's okay. But you had a chance to work on country music television, and mm-hmm. this is something I didn't know about you uh, until uh, I started doing my research for this uh, for this chat. Yeah. You're a massive country music fan. I was definitely then. I still am a bit, but I'm not going to say I'm still in it as much as I used to be. But it, it was a kind of a joke amongst my family because my mom was such a rocker that I rebelled with country music. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and so I remember meeting some country stars and just being around CMT was like a dream come true for me. It was probably, I have a few dream come true positions in my career. And I think that was like the first one that really felt like, wow, this is really cool that I'm here. Was that your first time? And not to suggest that you weren't passionate about uh, any other roles you had leading up to this, but that was that the first time that a job didn't feel like a job when you were working on CMT? Like you could just inhale whatever they threw at you? about the station or any or about like the schedules the programming anything like that definitely and you're more passionate when you're delivering it too right so your passion for the programming and the stars and the celebrity and the opportunity to link the brand just definitely helps and so i had a quite successful first and only year while i was at chorus so it was a lot of it was a lot of fun but you landed at Mindshare and you had seven magnificent years there. Like, let's spend some time on this. So you're very free because you had a number of roles there. So your first role out, did you find what was it? And did you find the job or did the job find you? Yeah, rightfully so to skip over what happened between Chorus and Mindshare. I landed somewhere else for just a very short period of time. And while at that desk, Mindshare reached out to me and just asked if I was interested in coming in and talking about an account director role. And at that point, I wasn't a director quite yet, but very much ready for the role. And so I went in and I was talking to them about the Tim Hortons account. And I knew in the wind that Tim Hortons was getting bought out. And I thought, they're the giant. So let me kind of see if I can fight from this side and keep the account here. Um, so I walked, yeah, across the street and went to Mindshare to work on Tim Hortons. And that's what I'd say is my second true, like I'm meant to be here because rolling back the tape back in Cambridge in grade five, I was selected to go to Tim Hortons youth camp. And so I was one of those underprivileged kids that got to go on a plane and go to camp for a week. And it was my very first flight, my very first camp trip. And so it was very near and dear to my heart. So when I had the opportunity also born in Hamilton. Also, 
My mom is from Cochrane, Ontario, which is where Tim Horton himself was born. Most of my family lives in St. Catharines, which was unfortunately where his car accident was. So I have like this crazy too many connections to Tim Hortons. My mom, like my whole family drinks the coffee like like it just needs to be in their body. So it was one of those, like, I remember sitting in my first meeting, uh, like right out front of their office out in Oakville. And I remember I took a selfie and I was just like, I can't believe that I'm here. Like I'm working on Tim Hortons. This is crazy. So would you say you had kind of the same level of passion for working on Tim Hortons as you did say for working on CMT? I'd say probably more passion. I lasted longer in that role than the sum of the three people before me. Tim Hortons is a grind. It was a big account. I was about to quote the dollars and I thought maybe I shouldn't be saying that much, but it's a big, big portfolio. It opened a lot of opportunity to do a lot of fun things. And I think that the grind on it was there, but the the fun and the new was also there. And that kept me kept me in my seat. So, and I also had a great team. The Brian team was fabulous. My boss was great. So it was, it was the right space for me. After seven years at Mindshare and working on accounts like Tim Hortons, you decide to, I guess, hit the pause button on your career. You resigned from Mindshare. So what was up with the resignation and uh, what did you do next? Being a director at Mindshare for so long and I had an opportunity to work on a lot of different accounts because Tim Hortons wasn't there for that whole time. Had a chance to do a lot of new business, different accounts from e-com, CPG, everything. Had a chance to touch everything. And it just, it was a moment where I realized that I needed to stop. I was going too much, not spending nearly enough time on myself and my family and my mental health. Um, and I realized that there was something a little broken in the industry about how we staff accounts and how we race each other to the bottom in new business pitches for pricing. And it just, I saw kind of, what I'll say is the ugly side. And I decided that I needed to just step away and reflect for a bit. And I'm so happy I did. I, I'm lucky and so fortunate to have the support of my family and friends around me and my husband who he himself had gone back to school for four years. So he was very much willing to let me take a pause and just find the thing that really resonates with me. And I, and actually, Victor, I remember you and I talking about how I have so much experience, it'd be awful to just throw it away. And so I did some soul searching and I remember leaving the shop going, there's 10% that I do here that I absolutely love. And I need to find the job that is a hundred percent of that and taking the time to network with people think about things on a bigger scale than just that here and now I think when you're in the industry and especially through COVID everybody's day-to-day and it's not even day-to-day there's Zoom chat to Teams chat to Google Meet like it's not even that much it's just going going and going and going and so to stop and really reflect and have an opportunity to think about what do I really have and what can I really bring forward? And where is that skill most useful or needed or welcomed? And I got a very good friend in the industry who gave me a call and said, there's a new business role here. And I had worked on a lot of new business with this person in my past. And she said, 
I, we don't, the industry can't lose you. So please come here. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm so happy I did. Well, congratulations on landing at Dentsu. Let me ask mm-hmm. you a couple of questions about that role. How does it feel to be in basically a sales role, but on the agency side? So as we go full circle in this conversation, it's, I remember being on the Georgian College Advisory Committee and one of the advisors said to the students that, you know, in your career, you'll, you can look forward, but you'll never really know where you're going. But when you look back, you'll always understand how you got there. And when I think about how I started in TV and negotiations and packaging and seeing the business from that angle, going through direct response and seeing that how media ties to client business and how agility needs to work to keep clients business moving forward, getting into strategy planning and really having those big marketing conversations with the whole marketing table, PR and events and creative and everybody else. And then being in sales and also just being a bit of a natural hustler, but also chatty and open to great conversation, it completely makes sense why I love new business. I love the variety. It's not the same business problem every single day. You're working on a brief. You get access to the top of the talent of the agencies, and you're talking with all the CEOs all the time. And it's all the conversations that I want to have. And it's it's a lot of fun. You don't have to go into the secret sauce, but talk to me a little bit about how the sales process works when you're trying to reach out to uh, reach out to prospects or new clients, because I've been in sales majority of my career, but I've been vendor side selling into agencies. Agencies have budgets. They need people like me to come in. They don't always need someone like me specifically, but that's what we're supposed to do. There's this system in place where they've got the cash and I have to chase them and prove my worth. So they spend with me. You, on the other hand, are doing something completely different. You're trying to get them to leave what they have now and move over towards towards your agency. So how do you guys start that conversation, though? Funny, a lot of it comes from CEO relationships and also procurement companies. I'm not going to lie. So brands are for either a business cycle, like they know that they go up for review every five years, every three years, whatever that cycle is, and they work with a procurement company. And then our relationships with those procurement companies will make sure that our name bubbles to the top for consideration or just CEO to CEO kind of level of relationships. We'll get ourselves on that short list. But you're right. It isn't about sharing the buy. It is about having all of the contract. And so you can't It's not like, oh, yeah, I know you're going to work with Google, but come work with us. So it's about selling our culture. It's about selling our smarts. It's about selling our tools. And then there's some secret sauce that I'm not going to get into too much because Densu and I are working up some competitive angles that is um, something that we can really claim in the marketplace as unique to us. So I'm going to leave that there. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing about that. One other question I have about your role, though, how do you work with, say, I guess the global team, because when you hear these announcements of agencies winning new business, it usually comes one of two ways. One, it's at the local level where, hey, you know, Client X is moving over to Dentsu. They moved all their Canadian media over. Or you'll hear the big one where globally they've done a review and they're moving all of their media in every country over to, say, like Dentsu. So in that instance there, how hands on are you? 
It really depends on how big that business is and how important Canada is to that piece of business. So and sometimes it's just you're handing in a one pager and the template that they've issued to you and it just has the pertinent details that they're looking for. Other times they're handing you a template and you're filling it in, but it's what I would say like soup to nuts on a plan. You're just following their template style and their process completely. And other times it's more collaborative in the way of here's what we want to do for our presentation and working with the team to um, figure it out. So there isn't a, if you can imagine new business isn't a one size fits all on any scenario, everything, every time it kind of comes at it from a new angle. You've also gone back to school and you are studying exec executive coaching at Royal Roads University. So what attracted you to the program and how did you find it? It was also through my three months of just taking the pause button on the industry. And I used a book that my husband had used when he was walking away from his career to reset. And it's called Be What You Are or Do What You Are. Anyways, and it just takes you through a lot of personality like questions um, and who you are and your interests. And then through that, it shortlists you into a few different careers. And I'm not going to lie, coaching wasn't really on that list, but counseling was. And I'm really big on the types of conversations I want to be having today. I do not want to talk about why a BCR is late or why the numbers are wrong. Like I'm over those conversations. So coaching is more about your future and what do you want to get? What do you want to achieve? And I'm going to help you in a non-directive way through open-ended questions and spend time on the topics with you to help you kind of unlock your own superpower to get you there. And that's that felt so enriching to me when I think about being a director and all the different people that I've worked with. And some people loved working with me, some people didn't, and that's okay. But I know that I had um, an opportunity to mentor a lot of people in this industry. And that was the piece that I really loved too. You don't really get that in new business so much. So coaching is going to help bring that to my forefront as well. And so I'm new on new in the market, open for business, a student coach. I'll be graduating in April. Amy, this has been a fantastic chat. Are you ready for rapid fire question? I hope so. Let's do it. Oh, all right. The campaign you are most proud of. That is such a hard one, but I think I'm going to have to pick the Junos, the Tim Hortons Juno campaign. Most proud of it because it was the first time a brand activated on the red carpet. It was the Toronto, or sorry, the Hamilton Juno. So it was Juno's coming home to Hamilton for Tim's. And my biggest thing was, was the Vine booth was a big thing then. So this was right before the selfie Twitter mirrors, but the Vine booth was still a big stunt to have. And they didn't want it on the red carpet. They wanted it on another floor and away from the party. And I remember just working with the Juno's people and saying how important it was. And it was their biggest hit. They had global reach off of, because Sean Mendez, he was hot then and he was coming up the red carpet and he hopped into the Vine booth and he was big in Vine. And it was just like, it was gold. And so I'd say I'm happy for that. Your favorite movie? Shawshank Redemption. Based on the Stephen King book, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Your favorite video game? 
<laughs> Currently, Sudoku. As a child, Dr. Mario. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? I would say probably Cameron Diaz or Gwyneth Paltrow, just because in younger days, people said I look like them. So if Hollywood were to make that movie based on your life story, what would you call it? The Strength Within. Your favorite book? Dominia. This story about this woman being the first female doctor in the 1800s and a bit of a love story, too. I loved it. Your favorite song? <laughs> That's, I don't think I have a favorite song. I love songs too much. I'd have to say like Landslide, but I love that song because I loved it first from the Smashing Pumpkins. And then I loved it when the Dixie Chicks, sorry, the Chicks sang it or covered it. And then I loved understanding that it was truly a Stevie Nicks song and I love hearing her sing it. So I'd have to say that's my favorite song. Best advice you have ever received? This came from my mother-in-law and it's so brilliant. You can't control the cars you don't drive. It's a good piece of advice. Mm -hmm. And I've used it a lot. It's a great thing to recite, your, recite to yourself if you have to let go of something. In a media, especially when you're a planning side and you're depending on so many people to bring the pieces together. You can't control those cars. You just have to have faith that it all comes together. If you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, what would you say? I'd go and give her a hug and tell her to just keep on going. She's going in the right space. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? A guidance counselor or like a youth social worker for sure, because like I mentioned earlier, these people had huge impact on me breaking a cycle that could have repeated itself all too easily. Amy, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. It's been great, Victor. Thank you. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.